Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from the Lancet Neurology. It's May 2023 and I'm Sarah Passy, a Senior Editor at The Journal. This month I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Andrew Cole, who works at the Massachusetts General Hospital Epilepsy Service and whose review entitled The Complexities Underlying Epilepsy in People with Glioblastoma is published in our June issue. Professor Cole, a warm welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Um, So first, Andrew, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself uh, and your research interests? Sure. I'm a neurologist, of course. I uh, have been at Mass General for about 30 years. I run the epilepsy service there. I'm not a neuro-oncologist. That's important for today's discussion. Of course, uh, in the epilepsy world, we see a lot of patients who have seizures related to brain tumors. Uh, Over the years, I've done some basic science work in memory mechanisms and long-term potentiation, but more recently, uh, clinical research. And I've had a number of areas of uh, interest, including uh, high-resolution imaging in epilepsy, epilepsy and Alzheimer's disease, and uh, in some clinical trial type of developmental work. Thank you, Andrew. So you chose to focus your review on epilepsy in people with glioblastomas. Why did you choose glioblastomas in particular out of all of the CNS tumors? Well, that's a great question. Of course, glioblastomas are the deadliest uh, brain tumor, and they uh, have an almost uniformly bad prognosis. Uh, survival tends to be short, and complications, uh, especially seizures, are one of the biggest drivers of declining quality of life for affected patients. But nonetheless, uh, although they are uniformly bad, uh, they're diverse in their localization, in their size, in the age of onset, in their propensity to cause seizures, in their response to anticonvulsant therapy, in their rate of progression, their response to chemotherapy and radiation, and ultimately survival. So even within the category of glioblastoma, while uh, uh, prospects are often bad, there's a tremendous range of diversity. From a scientific point of view, uh, this diversity offers an opportunity to try to dissect the critical features of each of these complications of brain tumor, as well as their natural history. A broader survey of seizures and brain tumors runs the risk of losing focus, as almost by definition, the more diverse the etiology, the more diverse the mechanistic and treatment considerations are likely to be. So with the help of our editor, actually, uh, we therefore chose to focus on a single class of brain tumor, glioblastoma. Still, the range of considerations was large, and the ability to draw general conclusions was limited. But nonetheless, because of the speed of progression, the severity of the disease, the generally poor outcome, it seemed to us that if we could understand the mechanisms, progression, and response to treatment in glioblastoma, that understanding would really guide us as a field toward a better, broader understanding of epilepsy and and brain tumor uh, in a more general fashion. And in structural brain disease in general, not just tumor, but other structural brain disease. So it's worth saying that, you know, epilepsy is a complication of many different brain diseases, both structural and genetic, toxic, idiopathic, et cetera. Uh, But structural brain disease itself is a major cause of epilepsy, and the mechanisms really are poorly understood in most situations, brain tumor being one of them. So this is a model system, really. Thank you. So you discuss in the review the pathophysiological mechanisms underlying epilepsy in people with glioblastomas and how these mechanisms could be targets for therapy. Could you talk us through what you think are the most promising areas? (laughs) Well, in reality, 
as I indicated just a moment ago, we don't really know how or why tumors cause seizures. So when we talk about pathophysiological mechanisms, we're, we're really somewhat in the dark, aren't we? So physical deformation of adjacent structures, deposition of toxic materials such as iron-containing blood products, early necrosis of selected neuronal cellular populations, proliferation of other largely non-neuronal populations such as astrocytes bearing multiple neurotransmitter receptors, altered connectivity of inhibitory and excitatory structures, aberrant expression of classical neurotransmitter receptors on both neurons and astrocytes, and disruption of general regulatory pathways, such as the mTOR pathway. There's evidence that all of these factors may contribute uh, to the development of epilepsy. But dissecting the factors and focusing on the critical ones is obviously important in making progress to better control brain tumor-related epilepsy. So I think we're, um, you know, sad to say we're, we're, we're walking in a forest in the dark uh, without an excellent roadmap and with many obstacles and trees in front of us. And um, understanding the true pathophysiology of tumor-related epilepsy uh, remains uh, very challenging with, with many possibilities to consider. And uh, we may come back to this question a little bit later, but um, we have to consider the role of astrocytes themselves as players in the uh, generation of neuronal activity. And we have to consider the, uh, the roles of, of the sort of toxic products of, of brain tumor, uh, which we know to be irritating in other scenarios, such as trauma, uh, blood products being irritating to the brain and anti or, or pro-convulsants. In, in many conditions, and blood products often accompany uh, tumors, so that may be a, a, an important mechanism in some cases. We don't have a perfect answer for your question, though. <laughs> Thank you. So you note in the review that genetic heterogeneity of scleroblastoma is a key factor in its poor prognosis. Why is this? Could you explain a bit about the relevance of genetic mutations in glioblastoma? Well, again, uh, it's important to remember that I'm not a neuro-oncologist, and so I'm coming at this uh, as, a, as something of an amateur about tumor genetics. But it's been clear for some time that it, in addition to genetic heterogeneity between glial tumors, there's genetic heterogeneity within individual tumors. An obvious implication is that limited diagnostic sampling of a tumor, for example, using a stereotaxic needle biopsy approach, may provide a very incomplete picture of the genetic uh, uh, signature of that tumor itself. Inasmuch as specific genetic architecture of an individual's tumor may shape treatment strategies, the negative implications of sparse sampling are, are obvious. But just as treatment choices will increasingly be shaped by the genetic architecture of an individual's tumor, clinical and epidemiological data suggests that a susceptibility to tumor-related seizures also depends on the genetic architecture of the tumor. An obvious example is the high prevalence of seizures in patients with IDH1 mutations. Uh, what is it about the IDH1 mutation that predisposes patients to have tumor-related seizures? So, of course, you can think of many potential reasons. Perhaps the susceptibility of IDH1 mutation patients to tumors is not a direct consequence of the mutation itself and its associated molecular dysfunction, but just a function of the fact that those tumors grow more slowly uh, and that the slow growth is somehow the real factor that makes them susceptible to seizures or perhaps 
gives them enough time for seizures to manifest themselves, whereas a quicker-moving disease may uh, overtake the development of epilepsy and, and render, it, uh, render it moot, if you will. Um, another example of this point is the genetic correlation of, of genetic correlation is the uh, the increased incidence of seizures, uh, relatively speaking, in patients with the BRAF V600H mutation. Uh, to date, targeting this mutation pharmacologically has demonstrated some promise in an animal model, but it has yet to be translated to human tumors. So here are two examples of um, why understanding the genetics has become so important. Uh, and they're, they're, I advance them in the context of recognizing the limitations of fully understanding the genetic architecture of an individual's tumor. One needs a large sample, one needs uh, a lot of work, and then the neuropathology community has made tremendous progress in this regard. Uh, we may come back to it, but uh, the WHO classification of brain tumors, uh, volume 5 or, or edition 5, 5th edition, now has uh, genetic composition as one of the core defining criteria. And they've moved away from anaplastic astrotytoma to glioma to really talk about IDH1 mutation, BRAF mutation, other mutations in the genetic background. Uh, as important classifying features, and, and obviously those get integrated now into the reports, and increasingly they change the way people think about therapeutic approaches, although there's an awful long way to go before that becomes a practical reality. Okay. So, next, you say that the management of epilepsy in people with glioblastoma can vary considerably, and it should be tailored to the individual. What factors should clinicians consider? Um, so this is where being the epileptologist is actually helpful because we we see these patients. Of course, our, our neuro-oncology colleagues manage a lot of epilepsy, and they do it extremely well. Uh, they have a lot of experience. But uh, with respect to your question, we know that glioblastoma typically leads to severe disability, and the specific features of that disability are determined by the lateralization of the tumor, the location of the tumor, for patients with seizures, perhaps because of their unpredictability, seizures are often the most disturbing uh, symptom of their disease. So as a thought experiment, consider the idea that an anesthetic dose of a sedative drug can almost fully suppress seizures, but at an obviously unacceptable cost to the patient would be asleep all the time. So in other words, we have to think about treatment decisions as a trade-off between seizure control and unacceptable side effects. Ideally, these trade-offs should be discussed with the patients and the family to maximize the quality of life for the affected individual. But it's important to remember that with disease progression, as well as transient symptoms that come as a consequence of specific treatments like radiation, which can produce some edema, which can cause a, a flare of seizure activity, which will calm down as the edema resolves. So these changes along the way create a dynamic situation. And what may be unacceptable anti-seizure adverse, uh, adverse effect at one point may become more acceptable at another point. So what do we think about? We, of course, think about age. We think about the current level of function, the severity of neurologic deficits, the prognosis, the concomitant oncologic treatment, uh, thinking about drug-drug interactions, which are, of course, very important. And the goals of the individual, all of these play into seizure management decision-making. And ideally, that decision-making is, is shared and not unilateral. The fact is that we um, 
don't fully suppress seizures in many patients with glioblastomas. We reduce their severity, we reduce their frequency. Sometimes we stop them altogether, but not always. And so the real discussion becomes how much medicine does one want to take, how sedated or affected by the medicine in an adverse way does one want to be in return for reduction in seizures. Uh, patients do, however, find seizures, at least in my experience, one of the most um, high-valence consequences of their disease. And uh, again, the unpredictability make them particularly troublesome for individuals. Uh, unfortunately, patients with progressive tumors have to learn to live with that relentless progression and, and, and the implications it carries, uh, and that becomes sort of the baseline. But the seizures ride on top of the baseline, and they represent acute moments of an additional difficulty. And uh, I can tell you poignant stories of patients for whom that was the thing they feared most after coming to terms with the basic diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not a very difficult. So final question. You end the review by looking at future directions for research in this area. So in your opinion, what are the most exciting future prospects? I think uh, I think two or three things jump out of me. Uh, one, one is um, I think there's a gradual increase in attention to the astrocytes themselves, the glial cells themselves, as uh, of course they're the core component of a glioblastoma, but they're not inert cells. They're physiologically active. They have membrane potentials. They express a variety of receptors. They express aberrant receptors, some for neurotransmitters on their surface. Uh, so they have excitability, at least of a sort. And I think it's becoming increasingly clear that astrocytes are diverse. Uh, there's a lovely paper from Ben Deneen talking about uh, at least five different types of astrocytes uh, with specific functional and molecular properties and really uh, starting to classify and, and list the physiological uh, properties of specific types of astrocytes and how they function. So this points the finger directly at astrocytes serving more than just a supportive function, but perhaps an excitatory function. I think that we have not even begun to explore astrocyte membrane targets for anticonvulsant treatments. And I think there's uh, a large potential or a large opportunity, I should say, to modulate astrocyte behavior uh, in the peritumoral setting and perhaps reduce overall excitability. The other thing that I, I find as a non-oncologist uh, uh, extraordinary is the progress in understanding the genetics of tumors, broadly speaking, and of glioblastoma in particular. And I think the observations around the IDH1 and the BRAF mutations uh, suggest to us that manipulating those molecules or understanding the pathways uh, that they represent and how those pathways might be modulated may be a direct shot on goal on managing the hyperexcitability and the behavioral consequences of, of, of brain tumor uh, carrying those mutations, that is, the, the seizures themselves. So I think they potentially expose new targets uh, for treatment. And I think medicine is filled with, with examples uh, where a uh, pathophysiologic understanding, as that improves, opportunities for new treatment strategies emerge and appear and become optimized. So that's my hope for the future. I would say, however, that in some ways it's possible that the brain tumor as a cause for epilepsy is not much different than the stroke or the hemorrhage or the traumatic contusion 
uh, or some other structural pathology. So we have to be sanguine in our thinking about whether there's something special about brain tumor-induced epilepsy in comparison to all the other structural epilepsies. But then there's something special about each of the structural epilepsies, isn't there? For example, after a brain injury contusion, for example, it's very clear that the blood products are a major provoker or provocateur of the post-traumatic epilepsy. We have yet to develop uh, iron chelating treatments to reduce the abundance of those blood products, but you could imagine that someone in the head trauma uh, arena is thinking about this. So I think they share similarities, all these different structural pathologies, but they also share or they also uh, have important differences. And each situation is likely to have its own approach at some level. Our longstanding approach of developing anticonvulsive drugs by looking at drugs that suppress seizures and animal models and then scaling them into human use is a rather blunt way of thinking about treating a specific pathology, isn't it? And it's an end-stage symptomatic treatment rather than a treatment directed at interfering with the uh, development of the illness and the uh, what we call epileptogenesis, but but the process of, of developing excitable and epileptic tissue. So, you know, I think paying attention to the astrocytes and their biology, which is a growing field right now, and uh, thinking about the specific implications of the new genetic insights into brain tumor behavior, development, growth, uh, physiology, are two places where there's high potential. Right. Thanks very much for that insight. Definitely look forward to what's coming next from, uh, from you and other people. Um, so thank you to for joining me today on, on this podcast. You can read Professor Cole's review online now at thelancet.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With The Lancet Neurology wherever you usually get your podcasts.